James chapter 1, uh, verse 17 and 18. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begot he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And maybe if the microphone goes down a wee bit in terms of volume, um, yeah, that'll be perfect. Maybe you're getting it too loud. I'm certainly getting feedback here, so <laughs> that will be excellent. And by the way, any children or young people, if you need a quiz sheet, uh, then they are in the porchway. And if you want to grab a quiz sheet, that'll help you on the way through here. Thank you. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father and gracious Lord, we thank Thee that we're found together in Thy presence, that we rejoice to be here. We thank Thee, Lord, for the mercy of God that is abundant and free. Where would we be were it not for the Lord Jesus Christ? Where could we be were it not for Him? And so we thank Thee for the intervention of Thy love and Thy mercy and Thy grace. We thank Thee, Lord, for showering Thy great mercy upon us. We thank Thee that when we were careering on the road to destruction and perdition and enjoying every step and wedded to our sin and loving the practice of sin and planning even more, we thank Thee, Lord, that thus the eternal counsel ran, Almighty grace, arrest that man. And we thank Thee that that's what happened. And there are many in the building tonight who can testify, this is what occurred in my life. And so we pray that Thou wilt cause even more uh, people that may be here, people who will tune in over the internet, uh, people who will come across the message recorded in some time in the future, people across Belfast to whatever gospel ministry they're attendant on tonight. We pray that where the Word is being preached, where Christ is being exalted, where the blood is being brought to the mind of men and women as the only solution for our sin, that I will come in great blessing upon the preaching of Thy truth, and that I will sweep many into the kingdom of Thy love and Thy grace. Lord, do be with those. We have had a long list tonight of those who were ill. We think of her sister Betty upon bereavement within the family, the loss of her brother, and we ask that I will come near all of those who are suffering at this time. We thank Thee for the better report regarding our brother Bill tonight uh, before we came to this service, and we pray that he will continue to improve and respond well to treatment that is being administered, and therefore again that prayer will be wonderfully answered in his case. Answer our cry, speak to our hearts, solemnize us here in the remainder of this service, we pray for Thy glory and for Thine eternal honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever met a philanthropist? Some might ask, well, what exactly is a philanthropist? And the word philanthropy means having a desire to improve the material, social, and spiritual welfare of humanity especially through charitable activities. And I would imagine if you were to ask tonight, well, do you know of, have you met any, are there any in the world tonight, then some names might appear. 
Uh, they are people who properly give of their time, give of their talents, give of their treasure, their money to others, and they do it in an effort to improve the condition of other people's lives. Now, as far as the world is concerned, these names would definitely top the list. People will mention Bill Gates and George Soros and Mark Zuckerberg, and I would be saying, well, all of those come with a danger warning, with a big red sign around their necks, because in my opinion, they are not working for the good, the physical good, or the moral good, or the spiritual health of the society in which we live. Check them out do some background search, see what they're doing, see what guides their principles and what lights up their path. And I'm sure you'll come in agreement with me on that. Many may be satisfied with what they're doing. Others like myself are highly suspicious. But I want tonight not to be speaking about some human being who may or may not be a benefit to society, but rather to another philanthropist. And he's not just any other philanthropist. He's the greatest ever to exist. And in terms of giving of his time, in terms of giving of his talent, in terms of giving of his treasure to others, to advance, especially the spiritual welfare of humanity, then there is none beyond him. And we read of him, of course, in our Bible text tonight, in the book of James, the chapter 1, and principally as we're looking tonight in verse 17 and verse 18. James tells us here, God Himself is giving the greatest of all gifts to the greatest number of people. And I'd like to take some minutes tonight then in this sermon to share with you some of the great gifts that He has given to mankind coming from the hand of the greatest ever philanthropist. And I hope that you'll see with me that this God whom many of us serve has been good to all of us, that He loves people dearly, and that He has a wonderful plan, the best possible plan, David said, as for God, His way is perfect. All of our plans and schemes and our designs, they have got difficulties in them. They have got shortcuts that are not beneficial in them. We don't see the end from the beginning. God understands all of that, and His plan and way is definitely the best. So we're turning our attention to these verses tonight. Verse 17, verse 18 of James chapter 1, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of His own will begat He us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures." And of course, our Lord Jesus Christ is one who was styled in the Bible, Acts 10, 38, as one who went about doing good, administering healing, sending the gospel of His grace, and showering that grace upon us. But the gifts of this greatest ever philanthropist, the gifts that He gives, are what? The gift of His Son. The gift of His Son. Look at the title that God has in our text here tonight in James 1:17 and 18. He's given the title the Father of Lights, 
the father of lights. And that's taking us right away to God's identity as the creator. He has brought these lights into being the father of lights. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the father of lights. Ancient pagans and many societies around the world, they believed that the lights, as in the heavens that are up there with the sun, the stars, the moon, and all the planets, they believed that they were gods. And they worshipped those planets and those stars. James tells us here that God Himself is the Creator of all of those stars. They're not gods. They were made by the God, the Father of lights, our heavenly Father. But of course, God gave to men much more than mere lights in the sky. When He sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into our world, He gave to us the greatest ever gift, heaven's light. He sent into this darkened, blackened earth in which we live. And we are told in John 8 and verse 12, Jesus speaking, He says, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And so in the midst of all of our fallenness, all of our lostness, this humanity that we belong to, that had capsized into corruption, God sent His Son into the world to die for our sins upon Calvary's cross. Don't be delight in texts, those very familiar common texts as John 3 and 16. And we just want everybody to, if they don't learn any other verse in Scripture, then please do grasp the message of John 3 and 16, referred to by many as the gospel in a nutshell. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Then we'll put another layer on that, the same message in different language, written now by inspiration by Paul, and in Romans 5 and 8, but God commendeth, Paul writes, His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So He's showering His love upon us. He's sending His Son to be the Savior. And you would imagine we men and women would be thinking, that is wonderful. We are so privileged. We are so blessed by this news. Tell us more. But of course, the very opposite was the case. Our Lord was banished in His life. John 1 and verse 11, He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. Remember how Jesus said in the days of His ministry in Matthew 8 and the verse 20, Foxes of holes and the birds of the air of nests, but the Son of Man hath not worm to lay His head. Banished He was, battered as well. He was hounded, as we know, relentlessly. Where did they get all of that energy and that spite and that maliciousness? But those Jewish leaders had it in abundance. And everywhere Jesus went, they came asking their trick questions, trying to trip Him up, trying to show to the public.
populace. He's not who you think he is. He cannot be the Messiah. He is not God the Son. And in John 5, in the verse 16, and in the verse 18, the Jews persecuted Jesus, sought to slay him. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, John 7 and 1 says, for he would not walk in Jurim, down in Judea, in Jerusalem, because the Jews sought to kill him. So he's banished with the best message ever. He's battered. And not only that, of course, he's brutalized in his death, subject to the most excruciating crucifixion. And worst of all, because of our many iniquities that he's bearing as the sin bearer, he is abandoned by his father as he hangs as the sinner's substitute on that center cross. And of course, we get all the details in Scripture, such as Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, right through the chapter, Isaiah 52 and 14 as well, many other details. The fact of the matter is, our Lord Jesus Christ, by coming into this world as a man, He says, a body hast thou prepared me, and that body was given and prepared so that he could experience pain, so that he could suffer in our stead, so that he could sorrow, so that he could be a victim on Calvary. By coming into this world as a man, he's forever altered by the incarnation and by his death. And you'll read Paul's writing in Philippians 2, and the verse 5 through to the verse 11, and first of all, you have those descending steps, how he was humbling himself, became as a man, became a servant, and right down through that extent of humiliation, and he goes down and down and down all for me, that I might be raised up. In James chapter 1 here, these verses we're looking at, 17 and 18, again we see him as that great gift, the greatest gift that God the Father has given, the Father of lights, sending a Son to be the light of the world that he might deliver us from our darkness. Paul takes up that same theme in Colossians 1. Verse 12 to 14, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. And then he goes on to explain how that happens. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Back in 1938, the year before the Second World War began, there was an empire exhibition they held it in Bella Houston Park in Glasgow, and many Christian churches in that day, they combined to present the gospel to the large number of people they knew would be streaming through day by day visiting that exhibition. One means of the witness was a kiosk on the Royal Mile Avenue, and they had Bibles there, the New Testaments there, they had portions of the Bible, and they were all displayed for sale. Millions of tracts were distributed for free. Many people came to the evangelist in charge of this kiosk, and they were joining up in conversation on spiritual issues. 
in the large window in the kiosk, there was an open Bible. They opened it at John chapter 8 and the verse 12. The words of the Lord Jesus already quoted tonight were there printed in front of them where he sang, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And those words were underlined in red ink, and there was a hand drawn in there pointing to that verse, John 8 and 12, and underneath they had these words printed. The only way out of the dark. The only way out of the dark. Now, as a result of that gospel witness in Scotland in 1938, many people came to embrace the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Thank God for the gift of His Son, described as unspeakable, indescribable, in 2 Corinthians 9 and the verse 15. Question is, do you know Him? And if you do, then if you do, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about here tonight. But if you don't, you need to get to know Him. You need to meet Him, and you can by calling on God to give you the gifts of repentance and faith whereby you can come to Christ and know Him as Savior and as Lord the gift of His Son. But then, in addition to the gift of a Son, we're having another look at James 1, 17 and 18, and we pick up here, surely, the gift of His salvation. The gift of His salvation. Verse 17 of James 1, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning of His own will begat us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. And in particular, verse 18 is all about God's so great salvation. Look at how James describes it. Of His own will begat us with the word of truth. And the word begat, of course, refers to the new birth, that birth from above that Jesus was discussing with Nicodemus when He said in John 3 and 3 and John 3 and 7, ye must be born again. It's that event that really stirred the heart of the Apostle Paul. And in 1 Timothy 1 and 14 and 15, he writes about it, writes about it again when he's writing to Titus in Titus 3 and the verse 5, and he says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Then he explains in Titus how we are saved. It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration, that's the new birth, and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. And it's not just Jesus pronouncing the message or Paul coming on his heels and saying the same thing, but we have Peter, and he is echoing the same truth in 1 Peter 1 and 23 when he says, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. So these men 
are all on the same page. Salvation is in Christ alone. It comes by grace alone. It comes through the Scripture alone. It is received by faith alone. The outworking of it will be to the glory of God alone. It comes about this new birth by means of the word of truth. That is the gospel message. Now, if anybody to ask you, well, what is the gospel all about? Where can I find a summary of what the gospel is? Where do I see in the word of God the gospel is so, so vital? Well, you'll find it in Romans 1 and 16 as one example, where the gospel is there described as the power of God. How is that power manifested? What does it result in? The power of God unto salvation, to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And the message of the gospel is this. Paul took pains to summarize it in 1 Corinthians 15, the verse 3 and 4. He says, I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. Let's not complicate it. There is nothing nothing to complicate here. This is exceedingly simple. This is all there is to it. Now, having said that, I'm going to use some complicated words, but they're not my words. I'm quoting William Cooper, but he gets to the real hub of it, and please come with me as we travel there. Cooper said, Oh, how unlike the complex works of man, Heaven's easy, artless, unencumbered plan, no meretricious graces to beguile, no clustering ornaments to clog the pile. And he goes on to say, inscribed above the portal from afar, conspicuous as the brightness of a star, legible only by the light they give, stand the soul-quickening words, believe and live. Too many, shocked at what should charm their most, despise the plain direction and are lost. And isn't that what we find today? Men and women, young people, it's too easy, it's too simplistic, it's too basic. There's got to be more to it than that. There's, there has to be an opportunity for me to be involved and for me to be prominent and for me to be central to it and for my works to count for something. And what they really mean is their works to count for everything. Spurgeon was once on holiday and he's crossing a river in a boat. And he's witnessing to the boatman about Christ. And he's asking him, has he a sure hope of heaven? And the boatman tells him that, yes, he feels that he has. And Spurgeon says, well, what's the grind of your hope? Why do you think that you may be going to heaven? And he said, well, you know, I do the best I can, and I don't do this, and I don't do that, and I do these other things, and I'm generally a good person. And Spurgeon just said when he had finished how good he was, Spurgeon said to that man, why? According to your scheme, Jesus may not have bothered coming. And that's absolutely the way men and women feel and think today. 
They can do it all themselves. They're good enough. They're a brilliant neighbor. They pay into charities. They help the people around them. They look after family members. It is all they, 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 what they do, and they think they're piling up and building a staircase to heaven on their own good works. And Jesus says it's not of works, lest any man should boast. Doesn't have anything to do with church membership, with baptism, with good works, with turning over a new leaf and all of that. It is all about, rather, accepting by faith the finished work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's all about coming to that place where you realize and you confess that I have no hope of salvation at all apart from His death, apart from His life, apart from His resurrection, apart from His shed blood. It's all about moving away from do your doings to done what Jesus has done. And the vital question is, have you done this? Salvation is God's gift to a lost and to a dying world. In John 1 and 12, we read, as many as received Him, to them give He, it's a gift, give He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe in His name. In Romans 6 and 23, the gift of God is eternal life, salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. Acts 11 the verse 17, for as much then as God gave them the like gift as He did unto us who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5 and 15, but not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, that hath abounded unto many. Gift gift, gift, gift. That's the word going through all of those texts. They're speaking in unison here. And for those who know Christ, the plan of salvation is a precious truth and a powerful blessing. He reached out into our depravity. He saved us by His grace. He delivered us from death into life. And of course, he didn't take any of the dregs of depravity upon him because all the time in rescuing us, he is without sin. He does no sin. There's no guile in his mouth. He's completely innocent, totally perfect, but he takes upon himself the sins of those who were anything but perfect, the defiled, the depraved. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene, and wonder how He could love me, a sinner condemned, unclean. He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them His very own. He bore that burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be, how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love to me. Bishop John Taylor Smith. I reckon you'll recognize the name. I've mentioned him often enough over the years. He was chaplain general of His Majesty's forces in World War I, and on this occasion he's preaching in a large cathedral. 
And the archdeacon is seated there on the preacher's left. And the subject that Taylor Smith took, he's an evangelical bishop, the subject he took was the necessity of regeneration. And to make his point and emphasize the point, he said, my dear people, do not substitute anything for the new birth. You may be a member of a church, but church membership is not new birth. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then he pointed down to the archdeacon on his left, and he said, you may be an archdeacon like my friend here, and not be born again. And except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then he turned the pointing finger on himself, and he said, you might be a bishop like myself, and not be born again. And except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Only a short number of days passed, and a letter arrived with the bishop from the archdeacon. My dear bishop, he wrote, you have found me out. I have been a clergyman for over 30 years, but I have never known anything of the joy that Christians speak about. I never could understand it. Mine has been hard legal service. I didn't know what the matter was with me, but when you pointed directly at me and said, you might even be an archdeacon and not be born again, I realized in a moment what the trouble was. I had never known anything of the new birth. The next day, both men, they got together over the Word of God, and within a matter of hours, that archdeacon took the Lord Jesus as his personal Savior, was truly born again, born from above. The Father of lights, all these good and perfect gifts coming down from Him, including the gift of His Son, the gift of His salvation, the gift of His supply, I believe, is highlighted here as well. In James 1 and verse 17 in particular, you'll have noticed the words, cometh down from the Father. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. God here is called the Father. The word meaning, of course, generator or meal ancestor. Many other definitions, usages of the word, of course. But here's the one that's summing up the idea that James is getting across. One who stands in a father's place and looks after someone in a paternal way. And as our father, God has our needs on his heart. He cares for us. And if you have trusted Christ as your own personal Savior, then you've been brought into this special relationship with God the Father. When you became a child of God, you were adopted into His family. He has claimed you as a son and daughter of His own. He has assumed responsibility for your every need. That truth you'll see in Romans 8 and the verse 15. Paul writes, for ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but we have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. We've been rescued 
Out of the whole climate of fear, we've been adopted into the family of God. Now, in our society, adopted children often feel and are perceived to be second-class members of the family. And they're reminded forever that you were adopted into the family. But way back in ancient Rome, things were very different. To be adopted, in fact, was considered a great privilege. The word adoption means to place as a son. And the picture of adoption, it's a beautiful picture of what the Lord Jesus does for all of His people. So in that ancient world, in the Roman world, there was a Roman law at that time, patrium potestas, the father's power is what it was known as. And that law gave the father absolute authority over the children as long as the father lived. He could work. He could sell. He could enslave. If he wished, he could even pronounce the death penalty upon them. So regardless of the child's adult age, that father had all the power and held the personal and held the property rights. So adoption into that family under that system by that law was a very serious matter. When a child was adopted, three legal steps were taken. The adopted son was adopted permanently. He couldn't be taken in today, disinherited tomorrow. He became a son of the father forever. His position as a son was secure. That adopted son back then under Roman law, he immediately had all the rights of a legitimate son in the new family. But not only did he have all of these new rights, the third item of law here was that he totally lost all the rights in his old family. So he's looked upon as a completely new person, so new that the old debts and the old obligations and the old responsibilities connected to this former family, they are canceled out. They are abolished as if they never existed. When we came to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance, we were taken out of Adam and adopted into Jesus. We have a new father by virtue of our adoption into God's family. We are brought into a new and a precious relationship with Him. When our Lord was here upon the earth in the days of His ministry, His Father called Him, My beloved Son. Matthew 3 and 17. Matthew 17 and 5 repeated again, emphasizing that special relationship and connection that our Lord Jesus had with His Father. Did you know that when we were saved, we entered into the same kind of relationship? Here's what Paul says in Romans 1 and 7, to all that be in Rome, be loved of God, be loved of God, called to be saints. If you are saved tonight, then you are dear to the Father's heart. And since that's true, read through the promises to His children concerning their needs. In Matthew 6 and 25 through to 33, in Luke 12 and 32, in Philippians 4 and the verse 19, we'll take the final text. But my God, Paul says, shall supply all your needs 
according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And what these texts emphasize is simply this, God will take care of you. Part of the family, there's the gift of supply. So this Father of lights, gifts that he gives, the gift of a son, the gift of his salvation, the gift of his supply, and finally the gift of his satisfaction, the gift of his satisfaction, every good gift and every perfect gift. That's how our text begins in James 1, 17 and 18. Every good gift. Not the kind of gifts you're going to open and think, ah, I really didn't want that. What am I meant to do with this? How is that a good choice? Well, we're coming towards Christmas and gifts will be given. And you'll maybe, on Christmas Day or before, open a gift, find a tag inside, but the tag doesn't have your name on it, it has somebody else's name on it, because what has happened is this. The person giving you the gift has received that gift from somebody else, decided, already got that or don't like that, and they pass it on to you. Well, there's none of that in the gifts that God gives. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, no variation, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. God's gifts are all good and all perfect. They're desirable. They are complete, gives us what in the best frame of mind we have as a good desire, and gives us things that are complete in every last detail. It's not what the devil says, not what the world says. Remember how in the Garden of Eden he tempted Eve? He tried to tell her, do you know what? God is holding back the best things and giving you something secondary. He's denying you what would really make you happy and make you fully satisfied. And so in Genesis 3 and 5, his words, For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And the devil saying, God's trying to keep you off that level, away from that pedestal, keep you in the secondary blessing, not the primary ones. He even tried to imply that Jesus was getting less than he deserved since he was the Son of God. Matthew 4, temptations in the wilderness. Verse 8 and verse 9, again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and saith unto him, all these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. You're not getting the best deal. That's the devil's line. If we're not careful, we'll end up trying the same tactic. The devil will be susceptible to this approach. He'll tell us, you know, God isn't really good to you. Look at the trials in your life. 
He'll tell us, you don't deserve the trouble you're having. I mean, you're a fine, upstanding Christian. You're doing the service of Jesus Christ. You're working for Him. You're telling others about Him. And look at what you're getting in return. Look at the sorrow in your heart. He'll tell you, God should be giving you bigger and better things. God isn't fair. You're being shortchanged. You're losing out. We can't listen to the devil's lies because lies they are. And if you're not saved, then you're the one losing out. You're the one being shortchanged. You're the one that's being fleeced by the devil at an awful, damnable rate. Roland Hill, Welsh preacher, began a sermon. And he began the sermon by saying this. The other day, I saw a drove of pigs following a man. This excited my curiosity so much that I determined to follow. To my surprise, I saw them follow him to the slaughterhouse. So I said to the man, my friend, how did you induce those pigs to follow you here? I had a basket of beans, the man said. I dropped a few as I came along. And they followed me for the beans. And that's all the devil has on offer. A few beans, worthless material. But he's leading you to your doom and to your devastation and to your destruction. The truth is, God is far better to us than any of us has ever deserved. He's blessed us with every possible blessing in the heavenly places, Ephesians 1 and 3. He's promised us complete satisfaction, Psalm 107, the verse 9, for He satisfieth the longing soul and filleth the hungry soul with goodness. God gives, and when He gives, He always gives the best that He has, and He always gives all that he has without reserve. Romans 8 and 32, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Think of all that God has given to his children, our Lord Jesus Christ, salvation, the Bible, the Holy Spirit of God to guide and correct and lead and bless us, heaven and the hope of great bliss beyond this life, life during this time on earth, forgiveness, eternal life, all of this and so, so much more. God has contrasted here with the sun. In the sky, He's the Father of lights. The sun gives its light. But you know that light can be obscured by clouds, and it can even be eclipsed by another heavenly body. The gift of light from the sun, it waxes and wanes with the seasons, but the gracious gifts of our Father, they are constant. They are unchanging. He does it without variation. He never wavers. His light never fails. His stream of blessing never dries up. The hymn writer said, Blessings all mine, and ten thousand beside. Great is thy faithfulness. 
No wonder the psalmist encouraged us in Psalm 34 and verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. Tell me, have you ever met this great gift giver? He has so much that he gives to his people. And if you're sensing his call reaching into your heart tonight, why don't you come to him, experience all that God has treasured up in Christ that he gives to every one of his people. For those who have come to him, keep following him. He's gracious. He's a precious father. He always gives his children those things that best satisfy the heart. And as the hymn writer testified, God takes good care of me.